What's up, podcast listeners? It's your host, Rafael Matuszewski, and today is a special edition of the podcast because I am actually recording from my place. So for those who are listening, this is still going to be um, beneficial to listen, but highly, highly recommend you go to my YouTube channel. I'll place the link in the show notes because we're gonna go into a whiteboard session with my terrible drawing of a human. Hopefully you can see that and I will improve on these as we go along, but um, we're gonna go over the joint by joint approach. I've spoken about this a little bit before, but we're gonna go really in depth um, since we have the whiteboard. Um, before we get started, I looked ahead, shout outs. Number one city out in California, city of LA. Shout out to everyone in LA listening to my show, super awesome. Um, Number two, the city of Newark out in Ohio. Shout out to everyone in Ohio listening to my show. And number three, all the way in Australia, the city of Sydney. Shout out to everyone in Australia listening to my show. So what we're gonna do, hopefully I am in frame. Uh -huh. We're gonna go over basically head to toe of what the joint by joint approach is. So. The joint-by-joint joint approach was kind of coined by Mike Boyle and Greg Cook. If you guys don't follow those two guys, highly recommend you do. Um, essentially what they kind of put together is that some joints are supposed to be stable, some are supposed to be mobile. And I will say there are some, you know, things that the joint can be both stable and mobile and it's like almost up to um your kind of inter interpretation of it and that that's literally what all of this all training is it's like you know you can follow somebody and they create this method of training based on research but really it's their interpretation of the literature right and you know joint by joint approach is just a theory and as long as you understand the rules, then that's when you can start blending and bending things. And I think this will kind of demonstrate that um, really, really well. So um, we're gonna start, maybe I should use a different color. I'm gonna use a different color. So I'm gonna draw a little circle. So this guy, the neck joint needs to be stable. I'm just gonna go S, so I don't have to constantly write stable. So if you think of the neck joint, um, the last thing you'd want is a lot of mobility in that neck joint, because then you would have higher chances of injuring it. It makes sense that your neck should be stable. Right, and a lot of times when people come into the clinic and they have pain, um, a lot of times they need a little bit more um, strength and stability in the neck. And a lot of times when you look at our, you know, day-to-day -day life, we all sit all freaking day long. We are hunched over. And funny enough, I was watching uh, an old video of me, like my wife and I use an app called uh, TimeHop that um, filters all of your photos and posts that you've done since however long ago your phone has been <laughs> with you. And a couple of years ago, my wife was filming me at my desk and I was like, holy shit, my 
posture is terrible. So I can only imagine like if you're watching literally like this, you know, and for someone like me that's in the fitness industry that knows a lot about posture and, uh, you know, functional training, functional joints and things like that, um, I thought I would do a little bit better. Um, so that being said, um, I can only imagine how terrible the general population would feel if they're sitting in that position, especially now during COVID where everyone's working from home, like just, just terrible things. So, um, the neck should be a stable joint. So a lot of times it's just learning how to stabilize it within other exercises. So one exercise I really, really, really like, and we can actually do this. Um, we can start listing off exercises. So something, um, we can, oh, I'm gonna go through a whole rabbit hole here. Um, we're gonna go through like progressions and regressions on how to build neck stability. So there's something called a three month prone exercise from DNS. Um, and essentially you'd be lying in a prone position and all the DNS stuff is something I really, really want to get into, but I've read into it a lot, um, is essentially finding the ways that a baby would develop and utilizing different positions from the developmental stages to kind of reset the nervous system or strengthen certain aspects of the body where it naturally occurs in um, developmental stages as a child. So the three month prone um, press up as I call it, um, is essentially in a prone position, arms out in front, and it kind of mimics like if a baby was on their belly and as they learn to roll over and move, they're using their head to rotate left and right. And a lot of times, if you think of us sitting in a desk, we're here constantly. So being in that prone position, now we're adding extension to our thoracic spine, lumbar spine, everything. And now we're learning how to uh, protract and retract our scaps and also go into that kind of like pack neck position. Um, and I really, really, really like utilizing that exercise. Um, Another thing to build stability at the neck, um, again, this is also, this is where we're gonna blur lines, but um, neck cars. So when I teach neck cars, it is a mobility exercise, but at the same time, when I really think about it, in order for you to put your head into flexion, extension, and lateral rotations, I think you almost need some sort of stability in order to do those motions. So it kind of blurs some lines there, but if I'm going through a progression um, type of aspect on this, then neck cars would be kind of the next thing. And now, another thing I would throw in here is the Turkish getup. Um, if you think about that first position lying down on uh, the ground and kind of coming across the body, that rolling pattern, right, um, requires a lot of neck stability. And I really like 
having that position where someone's lying supine because it's also teaching how to place the head in a more neutral position. And when I coach the Turkish getup, I tell people like, as you get set and you're about to roll over, I actually want you to push into the ground to find that neutral position to create a little bit more joint centration. And again, these terminologies that I'm bringing up like joint centration, I have created um, podcast episodes on this, so look back. Um, and other stuff that people don't think about is like, oh, I went with the wrong color. Um, like anything with the TRX, when like just TRX rows in general. So when you think about um, on the way down, in order to hold that position on TRX row and pulling yourself up, like all this stuff in your neck has to stabilize so that you just don't pop back or anything like that. So things where you're you know, on lying down and you have to support your neck are gonna be great ways to stabilize the neck joint. Another one that people don't think about is like hip thrusts. So if you're doing a proper hip thrust, um, the motion where say if I'm starting, I'm in that seated position and as I'm driving up and I'm here and my, I'm not resting my head on the bench or box or whatever you're using, I'm holding it for a split second and then coming back down. So there's that repetitive nature of stabilizing the neck. Um, I think I'm gonna stop it there because I could go into so many different directions on the neck and we haven't even like, gone down a little further and I'm going to periodically check my phone like I did earlier and there's that awkward um, quiet space but I want to make sure that uh, my phone doesn't shut off or anything um, okay so let us go should have drew this a little bit better but we are going to circle and again, hopefully you guys can see this. Right in the T-spine. So, I'm gonna do it like this. So, T-spine needs to be a mobile joint. So if you think about the design, and like, if you go take an anatomy course or studied anatomy, um, and you look at the biomechanics of each single joint, um, that can also give you a clue to what you should be uh, focusing on. And if you look at the thoracic spine, um, it needs to be a mobile joint because if you look at how much rotation, especially, that a thoracic spine can utilize is about 45 degrees. And a lot of times, going back to that first example where our, everyone's sitting, especially now during COVID, this eliminates the ability to rotate left and right and working with the general population and even like people that are gym goers that are kind of i would call them like meatheads where you know it's like bench back squat bicep curls chest all day every day and they end up getting really really um stiff thoracic spines so it is imperative for the human body to have adequate thoracic um, mobility and some of the stuff that I like to do um, and I feel like I can also 
start showing exercises. So just any T-spine exercise, any T-spine that um, promotes not only rotation, but also extension and flexion. So you guys have probably seen so many things that I've posted, but things like rib rolls, open books, arm sweeps, anything that opens out um, thoracic um, section of the body. Um, I also like using foam roller extensions. That helps a lot. I also like using a bench in front and going into thoracic um, extension in that position. Stole that from the powerlifting community. I think I saw it from Eric Cressy. Um, just get that T-spine moving. T-spine cars as much as possible. Like just anything that will prov uh, promote rotation, extension, and adequate flexion. And again, I don't really train that much flexion for the T-spine because we're already here. I don't feel that we need more. I feel like we need more extension-based stuff and not through the lumbar. So as long as I can get that thoracic um, spine moving a lot better, it kind of trickles into all other things. So here's an example, and I will go back into this. So. If the thoracic spine, for some reason, um, doesn't move as well, everything else has a kind of like a magnifying effect where everything else stays tight. The moment that this section of the body starts moving a little bit better, now the neck can move a little bit more freely. Because if you think about, you know, our bodies being one unit, um, it will influence other things. So if I have a little bit more movement through here, for sure, if you think of like the stuff in our neck that connects down to the same area, it probably has a line of tension that could get released and things will start moving better. And again, I'm checking to make sure, yeah. Um, I don't know why I was kneeling down that so long. So again, we've, I've covered so much T-spine stuff um, maybe I'll do a post. Um, actually, I think that would be good. I'm gonna create a post actually with all my thoracic extension and rotation exercises that you can start utilizing to improve T-spine motion. Um, but now we're gonna move on to the shoulder joint. And honestly, the shoulder joint is one of my favorites. And this is where the shoulder itself, if you look at it as one whole unit, it needs to be both mobile and stable at the same time. So this is one of those ones that I was saying that breaks a rule. But if you look, break it down a little bit further, the glenohumeral joint where the humerus goes into the glenoid, um, that needs to be mobile in order to go into flexion and rotate. And I'm just doing a simple shoulder car. That glenohumeral joint needs to be super mobile, but the shoulder blade needs to be stable. If you have a super mobile shoulder blade, it's going to kind of float all in weird stuff. And that's where you get a lot of issues going down the road. So overall, the shoulder joint needs to be both mobile and stable in my opinion but if you start breaking it apart then that's where you can have clear lines at glenohumeral joint um, mobile 
and scapula needs to be stable. So, a couple things with this guy. If I had to start picking exercises, and let's go with, we'll probably do two categories. Um, we'll go with mobility first. Hopefully you guys can see this. Um, and if you can, you can probably just zoom in on your end. Um, I always go with the shoulder car. So when you look up a definition of like a joint or even better yet, if you have to figure out um, how to keep a joint healthy, you need to make sure that articulation moves, right? So if I, again, sit all day and don't let this shoulder move beyond me going onto my laptop, grabbing a cup out of the cupboard, certain points of that joint is not gonna be as healthy compared to, you know, me moving it constantly in all these different positions. So if you kind of think about it in the sense that the moment you add movement, like our joints are meant to move, the moment you stop movement, things go south, things start deteriorating, things start, you know, getting tight, things start hurting. And our body's really efficient at figuring out, you know, do you need this? If I don't use it, I lose it. I always use that lean joke, but it's really, really true when it comes to working with any kind of joint. So the shoulder car is one of those things that's a global effect, not only for the joint, but other things. So if you think about what allows the shoulder to move, not only like the rotator cuff and everything else, um, it has a global effect on other parts of the body. So we go back to the T-spine. So T-spine starts moving better, neck starts moving better, shoulder starts feeling better. And now you can kind of see how things kind of spill out because again, we're not, you know, singular um, beings of, you know, my hip does this, so I just have to do hip exercises. It's, I do a hip exercise, but I'm also influencing other things. So with the uh, T-spine, a lot of times it's gonna influence other things and I'll show you this more as we go through this joint by joint approach. Um, so for mobility, the shoulder car is kind of the king exercise that I always like to use, but a lot of times people do it incorrectly. So a lot of times it's just repetition, like just get that shoulder moving. Um, for stability, this is where kettlebells come into play. Any like, if you've seen any of my posts, you'll notice that I always use kettlebells. So the biggest thing that I like to use uh, kettlebells for is shoulder health. So if you think about it, I went to go grab, you know, a um, heavy dumbbell. Automatically in your head, you're like, oh shit, this is heavy. I don't want to injure myself. So I'm going to grip it as tight as possible. And the moment you grip something super, super tight, that shoulder likes to centrate and get into um, a better position. And when I think about, you know, joint centration, I think about safety. So anytime I'm doing a stability exercise, I'm thinking about um, safety. 
Um, so the grip is kind of one of those triggers to tell the rest of your body to be in a centrated position. And I really, really um, like using kettlebells because most of the time, if you use a heavy enough kettlebell to do say a farmer carry, the handle's a lot thicker than your typical dumbbell. So now I gotta work a little bit harder and that just bulletproofs my whole theory and idea behind that joint centration. Um, and then I also, for um, grip stuff, is any kind of bottoms up kettlebell stuff. It kind of almost tricks the body to stabilize a little bit more, thinking that it's a lot heavier and it needs more stability. So a lot of times when I work with patients, I end up using only like an eight or 10 kilo kettlebell in a bottoms up position. And that just like people feel it right away. They're like, oh shit, like this is really, really helping my shoulder. Um, the other thing that uh, I want to bring up here is a lot of times when I do my carries, I'm not super close because I'm most bang for my buck, bunk bang for my buck um, exercise. So when I think about the shoulder, I'm thinking about what he can do. So that's why when I do a farm recurring, not only am I squeezing tight to get that joint centration, but I'm also um, abducting. So I'm taking my arm that's holding the kettlebell out to the side to about 20 degrees and then externally rotating it about 45 degrees to also get every single rotator cuff muscle um, activated during that time. So if you look at what the rotator cuff muscles are, what they do, now you can start influencing certain exercises with those same um, actions that those muscles are responsible for. And in my head, I'm like, that's what functional training is. If you can understand the anatomy, if you can understand the motions and actions a muscle can do and you start influencing your training with that, then you're like a lot further ahead than most people because most people just do what the person beside them is doing or they stick to what they know. It's like, I'm gonna sit on this machine and just do whatever thing it tells me to. And sometimes that's not the best concept. So shoulder cars, kettlebells for, um, building up the shoulder both for mobility and stability. So the next thing I wanna get into is lumbar spine. So we're going to, we're gonna hit the big players first. So let's go like this. So the lumbar spine, it needs to be a stable joint. Why? If you look at, again, the biomechanics of what a lumbar spine can do, when it comes to rotation, like we did with um, the thoracic spine, it has about 13 to 15 degrees of rotation. So if you think about any rotational sport or just in life in general that requires you to rotate, if you don't have enough thoracic mobility, where is your body going to most likely get it from? Lumbar spine. A lot of times, and again, this, I'm going to bring up the lumbar spine again, how it gets influenced by other regions of the body. When the lumbar spine has to make up for it, that's not designed to do a lot of mobility, 
you get low back pain, right? And if you look at the statistics right now, it's really staggering how many people have experienced low back pain. And a lot of times you check thoracic mobility and the person doesn't have it, they end up having low back pain or host of other stuff going on. And kind of going back to this whole like global effect, how other things influence, going back to the shoulder actually, when the shoulder starts moving better, the neck also can take a little break. So because the lumbar spine is stable and the neck is also stable, in order for them to stay doing their jobs, other parts of the body need to be uh, mobile. So if the T-spine and shoulder can do their job by staying mobile, the neck doesn't have to stay tight and it can do its job to be stable. So again, joints influence so many different things. Um, so for the lumbar spine, when it comes to creating stability based on exercises, um, things like, let's make a list. Let's do it this way. Just, just core. I'm just gonna, gonna do this, core. And when I say core, you want to think of what our spines are designed to do. They are designed to fight flexion, extension, anti-rotation, and anti-lateral flexion. Again, going back to like, if I know my anatomy and I know what the parts of the meat wagon that's here are designed to do, then my training can get influenced by it. So when it comes to the core with what I just said, if I know that I can influence the lumbar spine by being stable, by going by that logic, things like an anti-rotation press and all the variations, chops and lifts, single arm farmer carries, side planks, front planks, anything that fights off those motions of rotation, um, anti-lateral flexion, um, flexion and extension, I'm in the right realm of keeping my lumbar um, spine stable. Crunches do not fall into this, right? You're just going into repetitive flexion. That's not fighting flexion, if that makes sense. So if I created an exercise where I had to fight flexion, then 100% that would help. But if I'm just going into repetitive flexion, then I'm not doing myself any favors. And if you even look at like EMG studies of uh, muscle activation for core exercises, like crunches is a pretty low end exercise when it comes to activation. And a lot of people who do crunches in their head, they're like, oh, if I do crunches, my abs are gonna pop out. But you're choosing an exercise that's actually not the greatest when it comes to muscle activation. So why are you wasting your time? So if you follow proper core training, and I can probably do another video in here once, and again, I apologize for the mess because like we just moved in. So the moment I get this place up and running, I can probably start doing a little bit more of these kind of videos where I kind of explain and also demonstrate um, exercises. So functional core, quotation, functional core, that will help the lumbar spine. Now, this is where, we start having a little bit more fun. Um, I'm gonna draw another circle. 
and it's gonna kind of overlap. And we are drawing a circle onto the hips and again, here we go again. For the hips, it's gonna be both a mobile joint and a stable joint. Let me tell you why. When you look at the hip, not only does it need to be mobile, it also needs to be able to stabilize you. So if you think of anything single leg you do, running, lunging, deadlifts, fucking walking, your hip, lateral hip stabilizers especially, need to be able to stabilize so then you don't go into weird like side to side hip things and then your hips are popping this way and start getting hip pain. So in order for the hip to stabilize, a couple things need to happen. One, you can train it, and this is where I love, so if I had to do, let's do one of these, just stable exercises. Everything half kneel. So the reason why I like the half kneel position to create stability exercises is that it eliminates some other factors. So a lot of times when people are like, oh, I need more stability, I'm just gonna like be on one leg. You're on the right path, but there's so many other things that influence being on one leg, like your feet, your ankle, and your knee. So let's eliminate those factors and strictly work in just hip stability. So when I get someone in a half kneel position, now, because of this half kneel position, my hip is the only thing that's gonna stabilize me. Especially if I take this front leg and bring it into midline, now I need to stabilize a lot more, right? So a lot of times when I train clients and people fall into buckets, like general population tend to need all of all the stuff that I'm already talking about, they need all of this. So for me, I kind of work on the inside Right, so I would look at T-spine, lumbar, and hips first, and then branch out to the other things. Because again, if we go back to this idea that it magnifies globally, if I attack those three things, it's going to influence other stuff, and now I can get more specific. Right, so that being said, when I train half kneel, I can do so many things. And again, this, this is how it's going to spill over. If I am in a half kneel position, and now I'm doing an anti-rotational uh, cable press, band press, whatever it is, I am now working hip stability, core stability, that's gonna help my lumbar stay stable. I've already hit two birds with one stone, right? This is where my whole idea of functional training comes into play. If I know I can choose an exercise that's not gonna just work one thing, and again, our bodies work as one unit, obviously if I pick an exercise that's a lot more um, influential on other parts of the body, then I'm on the right path, right? So not only does that help, I'm also gonna influence other things. So another example of that is if I have um, a half kneeling position, again, working hip stability, and low back stability in this position. And I say do a cable face pull. I am now influencing my T-spine and my shoulders. So 
since we used the example of us all sitting, and I'm doing a face fold to promote a little bit more postural restoration in that kind of planar motion. Now my T-spine is going to function a little bit better being in that centered position. I'm also strengthening up all those weak postural muscles to kind of pull me out of there. So now I'm going to influence the health of my T-spine, the health of my shoulder. Now my neck's going to start feeling better. My hip is getting better stability work. My low back is being stable. Like, do you see how this kind of just magnifies and just goes on? This is why exercise selection is so important. And this is why I think when I train clients, they're like, I've never felt so much better in my life since I started training with you. Or like in the clinic setting, when I start working with patients and they end up becoming my client, right? They think they're doing the rehab, but when you look at a, a paper, they're like, this is just a workout. But their exercise is chosen based on their um, needs for their body. Whew, that's a lot. Okay. So when in doubt, just half kneel everything and you'll be on the right path. Now, let's look at... Um, mobility stuff and king of exercises for hip mobility hip cars again just like the shoulder where are we right hip cars again we are going through all the motions a hip can do you continue doing that the articulation improves the integrity of the joint improves things start moving better and here's the other thing like I said, when the T-spine, I, I don't wanna think I even brought this up yet. Um, when the, yeah, I did. So the, when the T-spine is restricted for mobility, the lumbar spine has to pick up the slack. When the T-spine um, moves better, the low back can relieve its duty and you know clear up any kind of aches and pains. The hip is the same thing. If I don't have enough mobility in the hip, the lumbar spine is going to take over. I find so many times that when I give more hip mobility to a patient or client, low back pain goes away. So now imagine if I start doing hip cars, shoulder cars, and a shit ton of T-spine mobility, low back pain tends to go away. Here's the next thing. What if I start choosing exercises in this core section that's gonna give me more stability in that low back. Now low back pain goes away. This is how this whole concept joint by joint plays in with how I program for my clients for them to move and feel better. Like this is like the blueprint of how we should be training, right? So again, I can go into so many different exercises when it comes to mobility for the hips, but Honestly, if you started doing hip cars, things are already gonna start moving and feeling better. I find that a lot of times people are always looking for new exercises, like it's going to fix everything that they haven't thought of already, but really it's like, just move your fucking hip, move your fucking shoulder, move your fucking T-spine, Think good things will happen. Just keep, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Now, where do I want to go from here? Because we haven't hit some joints. Um, I feel like I should do this like live so that people can ask questions. Um, let's go to the knee joint. Now, the knee joint. 
if you're going by this concept, the knee needs to be stable. But also, I will make the argument that the knee also needs to be mobile. And I'll explain that in a minute. Um, if you look at the human body, if the knee does not have proper stability, um, shitty things tend to happen. When this knee joint can't stabilize, you'll get things like anterior knee pain, lateral knee pain, medial knee pain, because the knee can't stabilize and stay in a neutral position. A lot of times, going back to this whole magnifying um, principle, the hip influences what the knee does. If the hip is not moving properly, the knee is usually fucked. So a lot of times when patients come in with knee pain, we're looking at their hip and also looking at their ankle, which we're gonna get into in a second. So when the hip is moving better, the knee is moving better. The hip will tell what the knee should do. So an example of that is if my lateral hip stabilizers are not moving properly or functioning properly, the knee will start going into weird positions. If I'm lunging and running, walking, I'm getting forces into my knee that should not be there. So there isn't like, in my mind, a knee stability exercise. It's more so work on hip stability in order for the knee to stay stable. So now I wanna move on to my whole idea of um, the knee being a mobile joint. I'm talking a lot, this is good. Um, if you look at the knee joint, we have our tibia that runs through ankle to knee. So if I, again, this goes back to like my kin stretch. I teach knee cars because I find a lot of people don't understand the concept that your knee can move. So if I drive my toes towards my face and I think of rotating to the right to external rotation, my tibia is moving external rotation right now, right? If I don't have enough tibial rotation, if I deadlift, squat, lunge, walk, run, things are not gonna feel good. I find a lot of times when people have knee pain and I check their tibial rotation back and forth, they don't have a lot of it. So this is my argument that the knee should be somewhat of a mobile joint when it comes to tibial rotation. And knee cars is one of the ways to do it. Also, you can do some pails and rails and influence some tissue change, which could be a whole nother video. So I'm not gonna get into that because I kind of want to speed this up because last time I checked on this guy, we are, damn, 39 minutes. Okay. Um, we're gonna go into the ankle. Ankle joint needs to be mobile. Why? Because our ankles can move in so many different positions. And if you wanted to really, really nitpick, our ankle can also pronate, supinate, go back and forth. They're kind of on this little teeter-totter as well as so many other rotations, right? So when we lose mobility at the ankle, it influences everything up the chain, right? 
So if the ankle is super stiff, now the knee is gonna have to take over some of the work and the hip, and then that's where we end up with some more kind of knee pain and crap like that. So make sure the ankle is always super mobile. For example, for me, my left ankle has less dorsiflexion than my right, and that tends to mess up when I lunge, run, sometimes when I do um, kind of single leg work, I can notice a big difference. Um, so mobility-wise, any kind of extension, flexion, just rotational exercises, so ankle cars tend to work really, really well. Now I'm gonna draw another circle around the foot. I'm getting kind of crazy. So the foot itself, not the ankle, the foot needs to be a stable joint. So when I look at the foot with all those intrinsic muscles around the foot to help you stabilize for a gait needs to be stable. A lot of times when I see the foot not being stable, it makes a huge global impact on the ankle, the knee, the hip and low back. The foot is such an under-serviced piece of machinery, especially the arch. Um, when those things clear up, a lot of this stuff works a lot better. Um, one thing that I will say, I'm gonna leave it for later because we're gonna move on because I know I've been talking a lot. Let's now look at the elbow joint. And, man, this is looking, so the elbow joint, kind of like the knee, it needs to be stable, but in my mind, it needs to also be mobile. Elbow obviously needs to be stable, so when you do push-ups, a bench press, pulling or anything, like the elbow's not flopping all over the place because it's super mobile, it just needs to be stable. And I will go back to specific exercises, um, but one thing will be grip training. But the reason why I think it needs to be mobile, if you go into elbows being tight against your rib cage, hands up to the side, and you go into pronation and supination, like it needs that rotation back and forth. And a lot of times, if you imagine, if you're a big fan of bench pressing and you realize that your pronation stops where it should go all the way almost parallel to the ground if you're in this position, you going onto a fixed axis by cranking your arms into that position and going down with weight, it's probably not gonna feel really good on the forearm. So elbow cars, just to go through different rotational movements for the elbow is gonna be where you live and breathe. A lot of people don't think about the elbow being somewhat mobile. Like there's just, just enough mobility that it needs in order to function properly, to be stable, to influence other stuff. So here's another example. The elbow, if it does not have enough mobility, the shoulder now has to work a little bit more. And then it's kind of constant battle between shoulder and elbow of pain and tightness and crap like that. So a lot of times when 
not only say you get the shoulder moving better, the elbow can freeze up a little bit, but then if you get the elbow also moving a little better, the shoulder <laughs> again gets a little bit better. Now, let's get into the wrist. Where do I want? I'm gonna go the other way. Let's cross over here. So the wrist needs to be a mobile joint. We're almost there. So things like wrist cars is going to help a lot. I find that when you get the wrist moving a lot better, elbow starts moving, uh, moving and feeling better, shoulder starts moving and feeling better, T-spine and neck. Like you can see how this global effect, how everything influences another thing is a huge, huge, huge thing to pay attention to. Now, the thing I wanted to bring up that I kept saying I'll bring it up later is one exercise that I always make a joke that if someone got really, really, really good at that, it will just fucking fix everything. The single leg deadlift with an offset load or contralateral load. Now let's think about it. A single leg deadlift, what does it require? Adequate foot stability, adequate knee stability, hip stability and mobility, low back stability, T-spine um, mobility. It also needs grip strength, which is gonna influence elbow, um, elbow stability, sorry. It's also gonna influence shoulder stability. Is also going to influence neck stability. So we've hit so many different points of this joint by joint system from one exercise. So my joke is that if I could get someone single leg deadlifting like 50 pounds, all their issues would be go like gone. Like and and demonstrate like effectiveness during the exercise. Like they're gonna fix a lot of stuff. So I spoke for a very long time. <sighs> This was a lot, a lot to take in, but it is definitely something people need to pay attention to. I am going to take the camera and bring it a little bit closer so then you can see my little drawing. Um, so again, thank you guys for listening and watching. If you watch this, you guys are amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you have any questions about this, feel free to reach out. And that's it for me. Until next time, you guys.